Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 33. It says here, partly by being made a public spectacle. Well, let's look at start with verse 32 so we can start at the beginning of the sentence. Well, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Last week we we talked about uh, verse um, 32 here, and <clears throat> I pointed out, if you weren't here, that the word conflict there in the Greek is the word athletic, from which we get our word athletic, and so it's an athletic imagery. And so they had endured like an athlete who's in training. And the reason that this is being said is to encourage them because they've been given such a severe warning about apostasy. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But he's calling them to remember their initial faith in the gospel and how having believed in the gospel, they were willing to suffer. They were willing to go through conflict. They were willing to be rejected by their friends. They were willing to strive uh, for the gospel, and certainly that would be the characteristic of a true conversion, in my opinion. Someone truly converted will have a willingness to not only embrace the gospel, but embrace it even if it causes a lot of conflict and difficulty and trouble. And I know that was true for me. I, I lost all my friends before, eventually. Uh, when some of them didn't turn against me. We just grew apart because we had nothing in common. But I did certainly go through some things, especially at work. And that's what happens. Everything changes when you meet the Lord. But sometimes people, having been thus enlightened and willing, later become apathetic or about their faith, or they, they don't get in a situation where their faith is being nurtured the way it needs to be, or they don't sit under the Word like they should. And pretty soon the world starts seeming not so bad and the, the things of Christ not so important. And such ones are being called into account here to not allow themselves to go down this uh, route because they're in danger of apostasy. And so then it says, now we want to go to verse 33. This is the passage we're on. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. So these early Christians had put, been put to ridicule, to abuse, and to public shame. Now this wasn't un, at all unusual in the first century. That's how they treated Jesus, right? And he said that the servant's no greater than the master. And if Jesus is put to ridicule and public shame, why would his followers expect any to be treated any differently? It's amazing how the gospel, it really does divide and it really does create certain reactions in people. Some people experienced that yesterday here, right? Yeah. <laughs> we had some interesting encounters yesterday. There was a Muslim guy who was hostile, who was very hostile, but um, I was very how would I say it, just pleased at how people 
responded. Uh, Dean Schletty just said, well, why don't we step outside? Because this guy got hostile. And I was talking to him this morning, and he spent about a half hour talking with the guy and explaining the gospel. And the guy said, yeah, my mom tells me about the gospel, but I don't like it. I'm going to be a Muslim. And then he was, he'd been in jail and had, had a violent past. And so Dean and Dean, right? Where'd you talking to him to? You know, you had that conversation. Yeah, and also Vietnam. Vietnam and all this stuff. Well, then he walks away from those guys. And, and Dean Schlendi says, pretty soon he looks out here and here's Mike Colagelli and Nick Colagelli praying with him. <laughs> so I don't know how that happened. <laughs> so he was being willing to be prayed for. for that was really exciting to see. I took me by surprise. Isn't that amazing? Well, the point is, and then I think Kathy said somebody was going to break your arm. Is that what they told you? Doesn't she look threatening? <laughs> How dare you ask me to come in for free hamburgers? <laughs> but, you know, the, that's what happens. Uh, and we just need to realize that's how the Lord was treated. So these people had been willing to take whatever came their way because of their commitment to the gospel at one point in their lives. And now, for some reason, they're um, in danger of apostasy because it's not so real anymore. It's not so uh, important to them. And they're thinking, well, why don't we just go back to our Judaism and then we'd fit in with all our former friends and everything would be fine. Um, The word here for reproach or public spectacle, I was going to quote that from William Lane, the word reproach indicates the verbal character of the abuse. People jeering and scoffing had greeted the Christians. They had been falsely accused of crime and vice. As a matter of fact, that was a common thing that was going on in the first and second century, was that rumors would be started that Christians were, and their meetings were actually engaged in child sacrifice, there were rumors that they were engaged in some sort of immoral things, which were false accusations, but it got spread around the Roman Empire, and people believed that the Christians were these weird people that did very bad things. And so they had to endure that kind of treatment. Okay, um, where should we start with our citations? Let's start it in the second row. Leif, could you look up Isaiah 69.9, um, Carolyn, Psalm 74.22, Dennis, Isaiah, no, 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 Leif, I was wrong. That's Psalm 69.9. Okay, Psalm 69.9, Psalm 74.22 for Carolyn, and Dennis, Isaiah 51.7, and Phyllis, 1 Corinthians 4.9. And Joe, 2 Corinthians 12.10. And Diane, Philippians 1.7. And Dick, 2 Timothy 1.8. And Kathy, Hebrews 11.36. Okay, the first one is, when you're ready, uh, Leif, uh, Psalm 69 and verse 9. Reproach for yeah, the reproach of those who reproach you has fallen on me. Jesus actually cited that psalm 
in the Gospels. So people that reproach God will also reproach his followers. And if it's very, very, very important to you to be loved by all people and to be popular, I wouldn't recommend being a Christian. Well, I, that's not how I should say it. <laughs> the, the, the truth of the matter is, God is calling us to repent and be Christians, but doing so may cost us and will cost us our popularity because Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And even if they try to say something good about you, they'll think of a... Of a uh, there's a quotation, I think, in Justin Martyr, if not Tertullian, it's one of those two who wrote an early apology, where, they, where he said that a common saying about how they would talk about a Christian who happened to be a good citizen, they'd say, Marcus Gaius is a good man, only he's a Christian. So that was a blight on his otherwise good uh, record. <laughs> so that in itself was a bad, bad thing. Okay, then we have Psalm 74:22. Fools mock God all day long. Yes, Keith. It's easy to think that the world might not Christians, but in a lot of what we saw in Jesus' time with religious leaders, that's not Christians, and the Jewish, you know, the current religious establishment, that's not Christians. A lot of what's happening now with the, the seeker movement and some of the mega churches as they embrace other things than what we consider Orthodox, is they now mock Orthodox Christians. So we have to be Churches or perceived Christians or some kind of a, uh, people claiming the title of Christians, mocking Christians that hold the biblical authority. Yes, I, I believe that's true, and I've actually seen it quite a bit. The most virulent—I can't even say the word—most uh, hateful and angry responses I get are from Christians. I got one the other day that said, "I am appalled at your writing." I'm appalled that you would be saying these things about this theophosic ministry. And they went on and on and told me how loathsome I am. And so what I, what I did, I, I think Keith, you saw my response, right? I wrote, I, I preached the gospel. I don't assume that Christians that are that angry about the truth are necessarily truly converted. And so instead of getting mad at them, I just preached the gospel. So I sent back an email and I said, um, because the lady quoted this phrase, you shall know the truth or truth shall make you free in order to defend his theophosic ministry. And I said, I like that verse. Let me explain it to you. And I went back into John 8 and preached the gospel. <laughs> so, see, Jesus claimed, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. And so he was claiming to be God. And then he said, unless you continue, if you continue my word, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And then they got angry and they started saying, we'd, we'd never been in bondage. And then I ended up in John 8, 44, where... He said, no, you're of, you're of your father the devil because the devil is a liar from the beginning and whenever he speaks, he speaks the lie. Then I explained what the lie was, what the truth is, what the gospel is, and what the issues are. And I said, uh, this lie-based thinking that, that, that Theophosi is talking about isn't even in these verses. It's not even under consideration. So I sent her to gospel. I never heard any more, but at least she heard the gospel. Um, but it's true, some of the things, some of the really nasty things I've seen said about people, like, for instance, Brian Flynn got this treatment from somebody, um, have come from Christians. But as he said, what happened to Jesus, most of the mocking came from Jews. 
Yeah, the, well, the Romans mocked him on the cross. No, that's true. Yeah, Bill. Well, uh, if you look at the Jesuit uh, old online, uh, it will uh, show that the uh, Jesuits who swear allegiance to the Pope uh, are supposed to mock anything uh, else but Roman Catholicism. You might want to look at that. Okay. So they are taught to do that. Yes, Dean. He hates the workers of iniquity. And these people work all day long for iniquity to get people to worship another God, another Christ, another spirit. Hmm. Amen. I was going to say you might get fewer comments from people coming in when you write them a thesis in response, but that might be a consideration when you finish your book for another book, is, is the responses you have with other Christians. Uh, we talked about that. I've got I've got almost a whole book just sitting in my in my computer from emails back and forth in the last four years. We talked about doing that. What would you think of an evangelist that saved the babes in Christ like little babes drowning in the water and you bring them ashore on the boat, babes in Christ, and they're cleaned by Christ, and then you take those very babes and throw them back in? What do you think of that? <laughs> huh? That's pretty nasty, isn't it? But yet that's what these preachers are doing. Because you say the congregation is going away back. The warning is for them. Well, first of all, they get saved by Billy Graham or through God working through him. Get Become babes in Christ. Only sent back to the Catholic Church and telling them not to go back. To go where you get fed. Fed the word of God. And so they're sending them back there to drown like these little babes. God says, suffer the little children to come unto me. Who tried to stop them? The apostles. They, they meant well, but they were sincerely wrong. Like Paul said, you got a zeal, but you're wrong. Only to throw them back. Is that right? You know what? I've watched these people get converted, go back to the Catholic Church, whether it's a dead faith Lutheran church, or anybody goes to heaven Methodist church, or some of the heretic Baptists. <laughs> you will die on the vine. You need somebody that's a shepherd of the flock to feed you the Word of God. So you can't pick on those people, get saved... And they don't know what they're doing because these preachers, these wolves, even if they're born-again preachers, they're they're withholding evidence. They're not doing what they should with the babes in Christ. They're not giving them milk and they're not, let alone, give them meat. (laughs) So they're accountable at the great judgment, not for the white showing judgment, but the brilliant judgment for what they're doing. It's not right. Well, um, I was just... (laughs) That's right. Uh, I was just saying... (laughs) Amen. Okay, anyhow, the, I just was, uh, last Sunday's sermon, remember, in the blood atonement, where, blood Paul, where Paul said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men? Yes. Now, why did he say that? He says, because I did not fail to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And so the implication is that if you know it and you fail to teach it, you're, you're responsible. And I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's another thing that needs to be addressed in the evangelical church. Is that, and I'm going to, I'm writing a chapter on this, that, and that'll be the last chapter that I have to write to get this book done. But I'm writing a chapter on private confession. And, and what it is is this, because I've had this happen to me. I challenge somebody on their teaching. Why are you teaching this? This is not biblical. And, and the response I get back is somebody sends me their statement of faith or a link to it or, a document with it on there, and the statement of faith is totally orthodox. Here's what I believe, and everything on there is right. And so then my response back was, if you know all those things, 
I have one question. Why aren't you preaching what's on that statement? Why not? Why are you preaching psychology and sociology when you know these truths? And do you think these people that are now in their 20s, how did, in fact, I have a friend that I had this conversation with that I went to Bible college with. How do you know those things? Well, because he went to Bible college in the 70s when they were still teaching them. That's how he learned them. Well, I'd like to know how these people that are in their 20s now are going to learn these orthodox truths. Because the, the, the entire movement has lost our taste or our appetite for the truths of the faith. Amen. And they don't even learn them. They don't have anybody to learn them from because the Amen. people that know them have buried them in the back of their hymnals. And, and, and what good is the blood atonement in the back of your mind if you're an older person who learned it 30 years ago, but you never tell the next generation that it's true? And isn't that being held accountable? Yes. And you work on it, you talk about what's not just important, but what you think is the answer. If I say I have this, you know, file away a statement of faith because it looks good, and then when you come to me and you have a problem, and I give you something else, it's obvious I don't consider what is my gesture of interest or important. That's absolutely right. You preach what you think is important. And if you don't preach the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the blood atonement, Amen. repentance, faith, uh, the nature of God, the, uh, what sin looks like, and why the law, why the law is, is important, then having those things in your desk drawer, maybe that's better. Maybe I, I maybe you just gave me an idea for a heading in, in my chapter: yeah. desk drawer orthodoxy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Orthodox, just ask my desk. Yeah, but ask the congregation. Well, I never heard him preach these things. People in my age, we have a thing that you as an individual just don't mention these things because somebody with education has to preach. And, and somebody with authority, everybody else in authority is the one that has to do the talking. And you're just a humble person. It's not for you to know, even. Well, it's not for you to give out. No, oh, really? Uh, so, so somebody says, well, what do you believe? And you say, well, I don't know, I asked my pastor. Right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's hard because you grow up with this thing that the teachers with the authority, the pastors, everybody else is smarter than you and better than you. And you, in fact, when I was 50, I graduated with honors from the university because I wanted to get those letters after my name that's getting marked. Really? Get the letters that you're not smarter. It didn't work? No. <laughs> well, at least you proved you could get a degree at 50. Yeah. I, I graduated from seminary at 48. So, uh, Well, the point is, these whatever has been revealed is given to the whole church, not just the religious leaders, the whole flock. Whatever has been revealed is to be publicly taught, preached, and we're to encourage one another in all these truths. And in so doing, God's grace will change us. And we will grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And I'm, I'm very concerned for the, for the next generation because uh, they're being given what somebody thinks they want, like this emergent church. Um, that uh, Brian Flynn uh, visited a bunch of those services, and he says there's no content whole service full of 20-somethings 
And there isn't enough content that if they went for two years, they would know any Christian doctrine. Wow. Now, why, isn't that just selling them short? Amen. Uh, you know, these people are just as capable of learning the truths of, of Christianity as we were when we were 20. The humans are all rational and able to learn. So I don't, I don't get it. But let's get back to our list here. 1 Corinthians, uh, no, which, no, Isaiah 51 7. Is that you, Danny? Isaiah 51 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people who know, in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed at the reviving. Alright, don't fear them. Don't fear the reproach of man. Amen. And that's necessary for every one of us if we're going to be a gospel preacher and teacher. Yes. And one of the ways not to fear them is not to fall for the trap where they say that you're, uh, you're touching God's anointed or you're not under a spiritual covenant. I totally agree, Bill. And I've heard all those things. Well, don't touch God's anointed. And I said, I don't. That's why I pray for Israel. You know, those passages were talking about the Israel and the patriarchs, not, not Benny Hinn. How dare you disagree with Benny Hinn? He's God's anointed. Oh. How do you know he's God's anointed? Because he prayed. Now He says so. No, he, he went to Catherine Coleman's grave. He got his anointing from Catherine Coleman's grave. That works. Okay, Phyllis, you had 1 Corinthians 4 9. A spectacle to the world. So, you're not going to... That here meant coming under verbal reproach. 2 Corinthians 12.10 Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, Paul was content with this sort of treatment because his weakness was what caused him to be strong. In other words, weak in a worldly way as far as the world would think of him, but strong spiritually in the Lord. So, uh, Philippians 1 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have away my heart, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Partakers of grace with me. Oh, yeah, the Philippians, I've been preaching through that. They. He was so excited about the Philippian church because finally there's a church that still loved him after he left. <laughs> uh, you know, everywhere else he went, once he was somewhere else, then they decided he was no good because the false teachers came in behind him, the Judaizers, the Gnostics, or whoever they may be, in, like in Colossae, the, the ones that have a better system of spiritual warfare than Paul. But for once, after going to Philippi and preaching, He's, he goes away and he's because he's in prison, and they sent Epaphroditus to bring him a gift, and they were still standing firm in Paul's gospel, and so he sends them a friendship letter, and that's what Philippians is. Uh, what to Timothy one eight? Uh, yeah. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, to join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So, Paul considered himself what a prisoner for the sake of the gospel. So don't be ashamed. It sounds kind of shameful when your leader is in prison. 
right? You can, that could be a rumor mill thing. And so that's another reason the Philippians were so dear to Paul, because they, even though he was in prison, they still loved him. Okay, Hebrews 11.36. Oh, okay, excuse, Carolyn, go ahead. That's fine. Okay, uh, let me repeat the question. It's a good one. Is, uh, Carolyn said that the Holy Spirit's job to convict us and to draw us to the truth. But what about, let's say, a church where the pastor no longer is preaching the truth and they're doing something else? Are they so far gone that the Holy Spirit can't draw them back? Is, something, is that what you're asking? Or are they just so hardened that they won't hear it? Yeah, I think you have what's going on, according to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, is that people heap unto themselves teachers according to their own appetites, so their own desire. So if you desire prosperity, and you have a whole congregation that desires to be rich, what are they going to do? They're going to find a prosperity preacher, right? Uh, and so they, they kind of reinforce their own air that way. Now, can the Holy Spirit bring us back? Yes, he can. Um, I had a I did a radio interview one time when I was filling in for Joyce Harley, and I interviewed Pastor George Cable. And on that, he told an interesting story of how that happened to him. He had, in the 50s, founded churches. I, can't, I keep forgetting the number of churches he started in Wisconsin by preaching the gospel in towns where all the churches had gone liberal. And I think that we could do that today. If God, God would raise up some young people that because... The evangelical churches are going liberal like the, 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 the other ones. You could literally go into a town and start a gospel church today. And he got started by because there were regenerate people in these liberal churches that were starving. He'd go in there and start a Sunday night service because they didn't, you know, because they, they wouldn't come on Sunday morning. And he'd end up with all the elect, so to speak, in his church. And that's how within a year or two he'd have, he'd gather people who were regenerate. Then they would raise up a leader and then they'd be the gospel witness in that town so other people would be saved. And I, that could happen today. It's exciting to think about it. Um, honestly, I think you could go into a town like, say, Princeton, Minnesota or somewhere up here and just say, gospel's preached here. Word of God taught here. No psychology. No monkey business. Amen. Services Sunday night. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? Now the only problem is we need about a thousand young men called by God to go do that. Okay, back to your question. George Cable, George Cable had done that. But the 70s came along and he turned all those churches over to, you know, young men come out of seminary, moved to north of the cities and got into a fairly good-sized church to just stay in one place as he got into the middle part of his career to just be a pastor. And he got caught up in the bus craze. Now, some of you are old enough to remember that. That's the big thing when I was in Bible college. There's a guy in Illinois that had gotten like thousands of people in his church by getting school buses. But it wasn't actually people, it was kids. And they, they were bringing them so far, they never actually got into the church. They had the Sunday school in the bus. And then they'd turn around and bring them back home again. And so the, the big thing was you got to get a bus and clowns and, and then you, you, you get all these kids. You go around town because the parents are sleeping in. They don't want to go to church. And say, well, well they feel guilty because their kids aren't going to Sunday school. So they, they get these kids, take them to Sunday school, and now is their way of growing their church. So he got into that and he got mobilized. Everybody in his church, he had to be, a, 
you had to either be a bus driver or somebody went around and canvassed the neighborhood or a Sunday school teacher. And the whole church was churning. To, and it worked. They got people in. And it was growing. And he was just pushing, pushing, pushing this bus ministry. He told, told the story on the radio. And he ended up basically almost having a nervous breakdown, laying in the hospital with his heart was going crazy. And this was when he was you know, younger. He's in his late 70s now. And he was looking up at the ceiling of the hospital. <laughs> you can see the laying in his bed laying there. And he says, Cable, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why do you think you have to have a big church? And he repented. And got rid of his buses. Other than he, I think he said he kept one for the people that actually really wanted to come. You know, that, that needed it. Uh, and he says, I went back to preaching the gospel. And he said, not that I ever got away from the gospel, but I, I was consumed by trying to get, make this program successful. And he, and, and after, after he came back, he said, I'm just going to preach the gospel and let the Lord do it. He's still preaching now. He's 78 years old. So God can bring somebody back. Amen. All right. And that's why I have a standard email I get. When I get an email from somebody who says, my pastor isn't preaching the gospel, should I just leave? My standard response is, go to him and ask for two things. Pastor, we want to hear the gospel. and it may, may, You may have to explain it to him. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding because uh, one of the things that I've interacted with people all over the country, and what they say is that the pastors always say, I am preaching the gospel. But they don't know what it is. And so you got to explain it to them. No, the gospel is who Jesus is, what he did, why we need him, the blood atonement, repentance, and faith. That's the gospel. Now, will you be, please preach that so that people can be converted? Well, no, I'm, I, don't, I, don't, I have a different way of doing it. I believe that, but I have a different way of doing it. Well, then you got a problem. But at least you'd ask him. I'd say at least make him so embarrassed to have to tell his own flock, no, I won't preach the gospel. He might end up being like this cable looking at the hospital ceiling and say, what are you doing? And then the other thing is to teach the Word of God from the pulpit. Now, the reason I tell everybody to do that before they leave is that we, the, the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. And if, who knows when the Holy Spirit is going to convict somebody and bring them back. Maybe, somebody, maybe some church can be saved for the gospel. So, yes, he can do that. He can bring somebody back. But the lure of success is a poison pill. Amen. And there's this, the only way to be faithful to the gospel is to lay aside the desire for success in the eyes of man. Amen. Whether it's religious man or worldly man, Amen. just say it doesn't matter. It, if I never appear to anybody to be successful, I've got to be willing to embrace that if I want to be a gospel preacher. Amen. Uh, Larry. Could it be that, you know, the gospel is so basic that it's overlooked and jumped on and you go moved on to the next things? It's like, oh, you know, we don't need to talk about the gospel. We're going to get on to something else. But that's so basic and foundational. Uh, Larry, you're absolutely right. And I think I was guilty of that early in my life. When I became a brand new Christian, I was on fire for the gospel. But then when I got into Bible college, you got trained in theology and stuff, and it wasn't that theology was a problem. I'm glad I got that training. But I lusted for spiritual power. Okay? And I thought that God would really use me if I could go out and God would heal the sick and I'd have this great power and God was going to do signs and wonders. And so I've got 
attracted to this uh, movement that was offering that. And, and the way I started thinking was the gospel is like this little baby step that, oh yeah, we know what that is. It's no big deal. Yeah. But this is the real kingdom of God. We used to talk about the kingdom of God all the time. This is what's really going to do it. And then I spent five years in casting out demons, uh, inner healing, all this kind of stuff, until the Lord brought me back. Well, is it important that your pastors may assume that the people always know that? Yeah. Right, but see, the, here's the uh, here's the problem with that. Yeah, I'm sure these pastors assume, well, yeah, we know the gospel, but why are you bugging us about that? But if they go on to anything, they should go on to all the details of the faith, the doctrines of grace, the things that are going to change people's lives, and they'll go on to some man-made program. Amen. So discipleship really isn't happening. They call all of these terms. <laughs> Larry, you're absolutely right. I'm agreeing 100%. They use the term discipleship. Rick Warren has a big discipleship program, and you know what it is? Shape. You need to you need to do a personal inventory of your experiences. That's the E. You need to take a Myers Briggs indicator. That's the P. You need to find out what natural abilities you have. And so his discipleship program is a whole big thing to study self. It's, it's not real discipleship. So they use, they co-opt the term, but it's been redefined. Uh, this true discipleship is discipleship under the Word of God and not some uh, program of man. Did you want to say something, right? Yeah. The interesting thing about the Gospel is it is simple in one sense. It's simple in the sense that someone can walk in to an outreach and they can be given the facts of the Gospel and it's sufficient to save the soul that point. But it is infinitely profound in another sense in that you're never never going to exhaust or or be rid of the need for the saving power of Jesus. Amen. I mean, eternity is about uh, us being saved still by I I have a scripture here. Um, For if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Yeah, amen. So he's, he's eternally living, and we are eternally joined with Him amen. in righteousness. Is that ever going to be blasé? It, it, it was so exciting. We'll spend all eternity exploring the depths of it. So why do we become bored now already? Amen. I think a lot of people aren't going to like heaven if they're really saved, and that's the way they think. Although I'm sure when they get there, they'll get their thinking straightened out. But yeah. The power of the gospel to prevent you from sinning, or keep you from keep you from uh, succumbing to the temptation, would be a better way of putting it, is minimized as you take your eyes off of it. The gospel, the constant presentation of the gospel to me, is a source of ongoing sanctification. Absolutely, it's the gospel is just as powerful. We're going to produce a DVD on that that we did a couple of years ago. I found this file on my computer, forgot I had it. And it's called The Gospel for Christians. And I go through the scriptures and show that Paul 
uh, two Christians, when he wrote to Christians, told them of the importance of the gospel. And so you're absolutely right, Keith. We don't begin by one way and then some, something else sanctifies us. Kathy, you, I've been so patient. You still got that same page open here? <laughs> Hebrews 11. I gave her that verse a half hour ago. <laughs> Hebrews 11.36. So, I like that trial of mocking Oh, yeah, it's, talk, it's talking about the, the faith, the people of faith in Hebrews 11, that they, by, they had endured chains and mockings, discouraging and imprisonment. And you know what's interesting? When that happens to Christians, that's usually not what causes people to backslide. They usually get stronger. What causes people to backslide is acceptance by the world. You know, Satan's, when Satan directly attacks Christians, it usually backfires on him. But what do you say? No, you know what? We think you Christians are fine. Why don't you just join us and be popular? You get a meeting with the president. You might. Look what happened when the church became a an institution in Rome. I mean, obviously there were some doctrinal problems before that. But mm-hmm. what happened when Constantine? What was that called? The Edict of Boy, the church history's been three thirteen. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was around 313 and then 314, wasn't that the first Nicene Council? No, that was after that, but it was 314 was when Constantine declared, I think it was 314, Constantine declared Christianity a valid religion or whatever. Yeah. Up till now. Yeah. When, when, you know, when the church stopped being persecuted, they started being persecuted. They started persecuting the true church. That's exactly right. Once they, once they had power, well, even before that, when the, when the church was just as persecuted as the Jews in Rome, the, true, the church evangelized the Jews but didn't persecute them. They debated ideas. If you read um, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, they're having a debate about whether Christ is the Messiah or not. But as soon as the church had power and was accepted by Rome, they hated the Jews. And started persecuting them. And so that's where anti Semitism became Christian. Yes. Bill. Uh, I think that we're just in the process. I think he's going to raise up some key people that can make this thing, uh, the issues cleared. Right now we have MacArthur is the main person who's in the public eye, who's clear enough about this that he's taking a stand and people know what the stand is. But I think we need more. Yeah, exactly. Well, we need to the raising up so the people see it. A standard was actually like a flag, so it meant that it was visible for people to see, to rally about. And so, right now, we know what the scriptures of the standard in the, in the gospel is, but it's not visibly. In, in most of the evangelicalism, they're not seeing that they even departed from it. So that's what we need. Yes. Yes. Um, did you guys say something late? It's just that the scriptures, if you've got a person that's visible, that's visible, but it's still, the person can make scripture visible by whatever by the parent by speaking it. It's yeah. still the scriptures that are the standard, though, not the person. That's right. The that's true. I, yeah, I agree. The scripture. Okay. I agree. Settled. Flags the Bible, but somebody needs to wave it. <laughs> Maybe even thump it. You are you one of them? 
you Bible thumpers. You know, that's, you know, it's not, when, when I was a new Christian, we got ridiculed for being Bible thumpers, but it was the world doing it. Now it's the church that's saying that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Uh, the world doesn't care if we have Bibles now, it's the church that doesn't like it. Hebrews 10.34. Look at, look at this passage. I, I, I was amazed by this passage when I first read it when I was a new Christian. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So here's some early Christians who lost their goods and accepted it joyfully. <laughs> wow, I don't know if I'm that like that or not, but I remember when I... The reason this verse stands out to me is when I was in Bible college, I, I went to um, go shopping with this guy. And we never had much money. This was in the early 70s, and money was a scarce commodity. And I had somebody had stolen something of mine, and I was lamenting about it. And he says, well, Christians, except take joyfully the seizure of their property. He cited this verse. <laughs> I said, well, I, I guess i got to agree with that verse, but I, I'm not so good here. <laughs> They don't cite it, do they? No, the prosperity teachers, they haven't read that verse. But here's what probably was going on, that they actually had been imprisoned. One of, uh, Lane thinks that what happened was they were imprisoned, and because they were imprisoned, their property was vulnerable to looting. It was sitting there. Who's going to guard their house? They're in prison. So people go in and loot everything they had while they were in prison. And when, if they ever got out of prison, they didn't have any stuff left. And they showed sympathy to prisoners. Probably people in prison, for, like Paul was, for the sake of the gospel. And why were they able to accept joyfully the seizure of their property? Uh, they knew they have a better possession and abiding one. So obviously, the apostolic writings, the apostolic writings are suggesting that we should have faith that is heavenly and, and eternal. Right. And that it should affect how we live and how we see things day by day. Amen. And so that we would actually be so changed by that faith in, in, in the truth here that if we lose property, we can accept that because we know we have an abiding heavenly possession. Amen. It's not easy. I'm not claiming I'm great at this. I don't like losing things. But I think that I think it is true, though, that in a real crisis where you lose a lot or everything you have is threatened, we do, if we have a gospel faith, we'll go back to this and we'll see, you know what, they can't take away what's important. Dean. And I think when you put into perspective that your rewards in heaven are eternal, they can't be taken away. Right. Plus the fact that life is but a vapor. Mm-hmm. When you compare the two, eternity and a vapor, you know, material possessions really don't mean too much. I totally agree. Yes. And the Roman emperors killed more heathen than any Christians, but the difference is when the Christian got killed and lost their property, they could rejoice. But when the heathen was killed, and there were more of them killed, and lost their property, they were full of anger, and passed it on to their children to kill, kill, kill. Well, when the Christians lost their property, they know they had a great reward in heaven. But yes, the heathen were killed too, and more heathen were killed than Christians, and they lost their property, but they had anger at losing it, where the Christians rejoiced. 
That's the difference between yeah. a heathen and a Christian. That's and true. Lost the property. We know we have something else that can't be taken away. And Jesus taught this. He said, lay it, don't lay up. Well, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. Let's tell somebody's verse. Linda, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Jenna, Matthew 6, 19 and 20. And I can't remember your name. Leah, Luke 10, 42. I think we probably have time for those three. And I'll just make a note where we're supposed to start here. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Linda? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and false you tell kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is that easy to do? Linda, do you think it's easy to do what it says there? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Lord has to help us because it's, it's not fun to be insulted and hated. No, it's not easy. Matthew 6, uh, 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in. So treasures in heaven are safe. So how could somebody lay up treasures in heaven? God says, take in orphans, take in, take in a man on the street and give him money and don't expect nothing back because then you'll be like your heavenly father, merciful, and your reward will be great in heaven. I love the Lord. Give a drink of water as unto me to a man, your reward will be great. You know, the Lord doesn't hide any secrets. He tells you how to have great reward in heaven. Take care about the old widows. He tells you, it isn't a secret. He tells you how to, how to be saved, how to have great reward, and it's beautiful. But we have to take it by faith that, you know, the great reward is for anybody. You, 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 know, you can only do that by faith because, faith because on the scene of history, it doesn't look like any good's going to come out of no. helping somebody that has nothing to give you in return. So you have to actually literally believe that this is true. Amen. If you don't believe it's true, then you've got to try to get your reward now. And then there are the wolves who come along and say this. You can have a great reward in heaven. Let me tell you how. Give me your money <laughs> now. <laughs> That's a big wolf. If I had your money, just think how happy God would be. <laughs> I've heard that one before. I mean, they do take advantage. That's a misplaced faith, too, because they're placing their faith that, oh, this person does have. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're being taken advantage of. Okay, Leah, Luke ten forty two. One thing is needful, and what was it that Mary had? She sat at Jesus' feet, listening to His words. <laughs> and so, what she had is the one thing that's needful. And that is to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his words. Thank you, Lord. Well, what an invigorating discussion. And the Lord has had his Christians like this up to this very day. What it says in Hebrews 11 about these certain people may seem to us to have only happened in the first century, but it's not true. From If you're studying church history, from... The time of Pentecost until this very day, there have been Christians around the world who have taken joyfully the seizure of their property.
and who are, who are glad to have a more abiding possession in heaven. Amen. And because it's not because certain people in a certain era are just stronger or better or whatever. It's just because the Holy Spirit gives people grace to go through what they have to go through. Amen. And so if it turns out to be yes, I believe He'd give us grace as well. Amen. So be comforted in that.